Hello everyone, today we'll be speaking with Tim Huang, a great friend of mine and fellow practitioner. Tim Huang is a certified mindfulness meditation teacher by the International Mindfulness Teachers Association and is also a licensed occupational therapist specializing in integrative and mental health. Since 2009, he has dedicated himself to serving others to help them feel more empowered, happy, and fulfilled. He's trained with some of the best in the field, world experts in the field of meditation, including Tara Brack, Jack Cornfield, Rick Hansen, Kenneth Folk, and Locke Kelly. He has been studying social noting and meditation with Ken Folk of the Pragmatic Dharma lineage, who has encouraged him to teach. He's been trained by the following organizations, the Interdependence Project, Mindful Schools, Unified Mindfulness, Buddhist Geeks, and the Lineage Project. Here we go. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of After Awakening. We're here with my great friend and co-meditation teacher, Tim Huang. Hey, Tim, how's it going? Hey, Ryan, what's going on? Excited to be here. Happy to have you, man. We've been wanting to do this for a long time, so glad that we're finally able to, uh, to have this conversation. Yeah, for sure. So you and I met on very fortuitously on an app called Clubhouse that just exploded into popularity for like one whole month last year. <laughs> and we were in all these, you know, meditation awakening rooms. And that's where, you know, you popped in and in the rooms, the discussion was all over the map, really. It was like Kundalini, New Age stuff, Buddhism, uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And then you come in and you were the first like pragmatic Dharma guy to go into the room. And, you know, I've read Mastering the Core Teachings and I knew about Dan Ingram and Kenneth Folk. So it was just awesome to have you come in. I was like, whoa, great. Uh, a hardcore Dharma practitioner. Now we could talk like Dharma terminology. So that's how we met. And um, you and I have led meditations on Clubhouse. We've, we've taught people together. So it's about time that we really had this conversation. So we can start with, um, yeah, how did you get into meditation and where did this really all begin for you? Cool. Yeah. Well, first off, I want to say, you know, it was so awesome meeting you on Clubhouse. You know, it was really cool for me because I, I listened to your podcast with Tina Rasmussen and I was just like, you know, this... This guy is definitely a hardcore Dharma uh, guy. So I was like, yeah, that's why I wanted to talk to you on Clubhouse too. So cool. So how did I get into meditation? Yeah, um, I would say the, my first glimpse of meditation, like formal meditation practice was um, in undergraduate in an abnormal psychology class where the teacher led us through like a body scan and progressive relaxation and then an open awareness. I didn't know this was what it was called at the time, but it just... Um, was this non-ordinary consciousness that I had never knew I had access to. I didn't know I could do things with my attention in that way and, and feel completely non-separate. It was a non-dual experience. And I, at the time, I didn't have anything to explain or, or I didn't have any terminology to explain uh, what happened. And, you know, I was just fascinated. I was taken. So I started meditating kind of informally, just doing that same practice that I was taught in class. And then 
um, kind of fell off of it and life happened, career stuff happened. I went to, uh, you know, graduate school, uh, to study occupational therapy. And then it kept coming back. Like even in that class, we were learning meditation techniques to like learn to calm the system, reduce stress. And so it just kind of kept popping back up throughout my, my life. And then when I really got into it was when, and started getting into Buddhism, particular, particularly is because, um, I had a, a lot of stuff going on pretty much. I'm sure this, this happens to a lot of people, like a dissolution of a serious relationship at the time, moved to a new place. I moved to Brooklyn, New York, starting a new career. I just felt like everything was falling at its through the seams. It just felt like my life was like over <laughs> in a lot of ways. And then I, I turned to meditation and I turned to, um, Buddhist philosophy and dharma and i was just like all right this is um really speaks to me and this really hits home and this makes perfect sense and uh and it 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 helped me tremendously save my life in many ways and now i'm you know in, indebted to the teachings and now now i teach um in, in schools in brooklyn and i also have my own students now uh that i do one-on-one -on -one work with so yeah. So it's just been a, it's coming around full circle. Yeah. Where did you grow up and did you have a, a religious background as a kid? Mm, yeah. So my parents uh, immigrated from Taiwan in the seventies. I was born in South Jersey and grew up with a Christian background. Yeah. Wow. So you grew up Christian. Yeah. I grew up Christian and going up Sunday school, praise Jesus and, um, you know, it, that's a, a funny story because when I was young, I was on the streets of, uh, in Philadelphia in Chinatown, I was handed a book from a monastic, uh, a Buddhist monastic and I got it. And I was, you know, I was, must've been like six years old at the time. And I remember my mom telling me that, oh, you know, don't read that. And she, and then she said, you know, Buddhists only care about themselves. <laughs> And then, and I was like, oh, okay, interesting. So I bookmarked that later in my life. Cause I was like, that sounds really interesting to me. <laughs> you know, she's like, oh, they're all about pleasure. <laughs> and which is funny. Maybe we could talk about that a little bit because, sure. you know, that, that's a misconception, you know, of uh, Buddhism in general. And that's one way of looking at it. Right. From, definitely from a Christian contemplative view. Right. So, uh, but anyway, so that, I think that kind of sparked my interest, <laughs> you know, it was, so your parents were Christian in Taiwan or they came, or they became Christian when they came to the U S mom was Christian in Taiwan. Cause wow. And my dad was agnostic and still is. Yeah. But I was brought up Christian. Yeah. But then I and, went through a phase where I wasn't religious at all. Like I'm sure a lot of people did in my teenage years and then uh, came to Buddhism for its um, powers, psychological powers and uh and uh, how it helped me in a lot of ways as a technology, for sure. How'd your parents feel about um, you becoming so involved in practice? Do they know your, how deep, deeply involved you are in all of this? Um, they're kind of, it's weird because when you get into really deep and you try to dive deep into spirituality, uh, people start thinking you're weird and you can't talk to a lot of people about it. So I kind of kept, kept it on the hush and they knew I was going on retreats and I was really dedicated towards it. Um, uh, I think now they're realizing the fruits of it. So they they can appreciate it. it. It was kind of weird at first, but my dad also meditated uh, when he was in college. He learned some Zen 
meditation. So he knew of it. He just never really um, went deep with it. As, and so they're starting to appreciate it because now they're realizing that, you know, um, oh, I didn't know meditation mindfulness was so big in the West now. It, it's exploded and it unbeknownst to them, they didn't know it. But now now they're starting to realize it and how it, it is. A, it's like a public health revolution um, these days. So, yeah. So now they're, they, they're maybe, you know, a little more proud of me these days. Having realized oh, yeah. That. 100%, dude. I mean, when yeah. you and I started 10, 15 years ago, whatever it was, you were, a, you were still a nut job for doing this, mm. you know, for being mm-hmm. interested in this stuff, mm-hmm. but now it's, it's everywhere. So, yeah. Well, curious, how did, uh, what, what was, what was your background growing up and, uh, and, and how has it evolved? Well, for me, you know, my mom is Thai. And if you're born in Thailand, it's like a 95% Buddhist country. But it's kind of like the same way that Americans are generally in the past. Americans were like, by birth, you're Christian, you know. Um, but in Thailand, it was like that. By birth, you're, you're Buddhist and you grew up around the temple. So my mom and the whole family had that, had that background. So for me to learn Thai, they had to drop me off at this temple in North Hollywood as a kid. And I would do like Thai summer camp there. And that's where I like first bowed before the Buddha and but they wouldn't teach you any Dharma at all. Like the monks kind of just lived there. And then there was like the school section of the, of the whole temple. And that's where all the kids and the, the Thai teachers were. And I remember they had us meditate every, every morning, but they wouldn't give us any instruction. They would just tell us, um, sit down, don't say anything and don't move. And so we're just like a bunch of little kids just like going like this like fidgeting and you know some some kids are like sleeping is adorable but that was my that was my introduction to um to that whole side of um of thai and and asian culture Um, but i only did that i only went to the thai summer camp for like two years but that's really where i learned i learned thai and then i got older and and forgot it and most of my life or most of my teen years was just an agnostic so I didn't really have any kind of my my dad was really clear on not conditioning me with any like philical or um, religious ideas or any of that. Even even materialism, he was he didn't push that on me either. And uh, my mom, since she was like Buddhist by birth, she didn't know much about the philosophy or the teachings or anything. And then when I was seventeen, she invited me to a or seventeen. We went on our first meditation retreat together and you know, that was it. That's how it all began. So Mm. nice. Yeah. So, so for you, um, you got into it in, in college and what was the, what was the progression from there? What, what made you actually start to, uh, seek a teacher or begin to take this more seriously? Mm. Yeah. So good question to take it more seriously. So I started, uh, joining Dharma circles, um, and Western Buddhist circles and, well, actually before that I was doing secular mindfulness, like doing secular mindfulness and like, uh, just on YouTube and things like that. Um, tried a bunch of apps, all that kind of stuff, but then going deeper, I was just like, you know, I need, um, to dig a little deeper. And that's when I started working with, uh, Kenneth Folk one-on-one and, um, yeah. And then, um, I just wanted to master meditation. I mean, that's, that's the thing. So, um, you just want to get better. Right. So, and it's always helps to have a teacher, someone to, uh, 
um, get feedback from, also um, to get pointers from, and to also contextualize what you're going through in meditation, and and also kind of change your worldview, dig dig a bit deeper. Because I found that what I was finding in like the secular mindfulness um, is amazing and and uh, wonderful and um, so accessible, yet um, it was le- leaves behind a whole rich tradition and orientation to practice that I found lacking for myself. Because I was like. There's and um, there's something deeper to this, or how how can I get deeper? And I, I found that working with a teacher that has um, a lot of deep practice and that's very committed and um, very inspiring, it just what's the word? It's kind of like permeates through you, or you absorb it through them. So yep, I, I found found that to be um, really awesome. In the secular circles and in your experience in that community. Is, uh, is fruition or cessation experiences a part of their map or do they not go that, that far? No. So like in, in secular, you know, mindfulness, you know, there's no talk about attainments at all. Exactly. Well, there's n- not much at all. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of books about this, right? Like, uh, and, um, like Daniel Ingram's book, Master and Core the Teachings of the Buddha, kind of talks about that. And, and Kenneth has been pretty outspoken about that as well, about how, um, you know, it, 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 this is a specific style of Dharma, non-competitive, you know, um, non-hierarchical. Um, and yeah, they speak about enlightenment, but they don't really talk about how to get there as opposed to, which is where in the pragmatic um, Dharma community, they're all about mastery and how to do it and and techniques and also experimenting using yourself as to experiment and um yeah and so i i found that really uh inspiring for sure this this idea of like kind of levels leveling it up and there's maps and there's progressions and it's just like um it's like i can actually see where this is going based on history based on uh, uh meditation experts experience and guiding their students. So I, it just opened up a whole new world and um, orientation to practice. You know, it's interesting how with the secular mindfulness, you go to one of these classes and it's just, you know, you're just noticing experience and it's very chop wood, carry water, you know, and you do the whole pragmatic dharma or a more elaborate map of practice and you go through the jhanas formless attainments cessations mm-hmm. fruitions this whole cycle and then it's still chop wood carry water it's great mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. you're still you're still noticing experience you're still noticing yeah. phenomena so i find right. that but it's it's completely different after having gone through all of that because now your perspective is so much larger when you're initially doing mindfulness you're doing it from very much a sense of self self that is really shaved down and just under assault <laughs> when you take a practice very seriously so wanted to ask you what was the the progression like when you started working with Kenneth Kenneth Folk did you initially go through the jhanas and the formless attainments and how did you balance the more Theravadan style practices with the self-inquiry that he also teaches yeah, so I was always experimenting with jhanas and things like that, vipassana, all on my own side of this background, and I would go to him, go to him to kind of contextualize my practice, put it in context, like and and also like um, talk about uh, where I am in my practice as well. And he 
help guide me in certain ways. So it got to a point where like I was um, seeing like lights and practicing different colors in my meditation. And I was just like, what the heck is going on? Going through Kundalini stuff um, and doing uh, combining concentration of Vipassana and then self-inquiry at the end. And so I was kind of like remixing meditation on my own. And I was like uh, getting his support and, and he, he's just very encouraging. He's just like, yeah, just do what you want to do. You know, like don't, um, go, um, he tells me go where the juice is, you know, go, go to where your interests are. So, um, yeah. And just, he helped me put different contemplative frameworks onto what's going on and seeing what's useful seeing what's useful to me, seeing if it works for me. And, you know, and so it, yeah. So I think my meditation got, got, uh, deeper, stronger, more powerful. It got, it became more potent. And then, and, um, just a lot of weird side effects, weird, freaky things happen for sure. But at the same, but it's fun. It's all fun. And it's all part of the territory is what I realized. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what was what was the first milestone uh, per, for you personally in in your practice, like in meditation or even just in in perceptual changes that were the result mm. of your practice? Like, at what point did you know, whoa, mm. this is very yeah. different? It's been a few times. So, like my first time meditating, I had some type of weird non separation uh, effect. And also it just keeps coming down to like stilling the mind. Every time I would concentrate body scan, it's just like, Hmm, there's something going on here. So, um, just felt that there is something going on in my consciousness. I'm altering it somehow. And, and this is good. And it just keeps reinforcing itself. So, you know, I would, I, I, try to really steep myself in a certain technique like uh, jhanas or uh, vipassana and then and then and then more non-dual stuff like glimpse practices so i um went on a day long with Locke kelly before and we did some self-inquiry and that shifts too so it's just like these moments of freedom that's what it feels like to me like just moments of quiet and freedom and stillness and it's just like this is you know in our busy everyday lives it just seems so um, precious those moments so that's how i that's how i felt and that's how i continue to feel it's just like there's a preciousness to this this process and it's, there's a sense of this is uh, sacredness and so that's what I, I keep coming back to and that's what my practice is today to remembering kind of the sacredness, the Dharma in the everyday moments and just keep remembering because I, because re we all forget, we all have things that we have to do. We have to do lists. We, we have things we have to accomplish professionally in our relationships. Um, so that's something I'm more, I've been working on. And that's what I've been working on the last few years. It's just like integrating spirituality, um, the spiritual path with the, with um, the lay life the the kind of life that we all gonna have to live we're do, doing the things that we need to do in the modern society 
Yeah, absolutely. With the jhanas and learned under Kenneth Folk or that are practicing the um, pragmatic Dharma circles, I know for the people that are listening to the show, we have different definitions of what jhana is. So just, mm-hmm. just saying that I acknowledge that. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, right. Uh, yeah. I just yeah. want to be clear that like what, what I, whatever I was doing with jhanas is like, kind of like, like what I was um, kind of experimenting. What, what I read from Tina, Tina's book, practicing jhanas, Tina and Steven Snyder's book. Also, I was reading about Lee Brasington then. And so it was like, it was kind of like, all right, let me just try it. You yep. know, let me, let me, let me sit through it. So, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, just wanted to clarify that. What was your first fruition like, or for our first experience of, of cessation? And did that really, you know, because in the mastering core teachings of the Buddha and in the pra- pragmatic Dharma circles, at least when I was initially finding out and researching all of this stuff uh, 10 or, or 12 years ago, um, Dan Ingram really just emphasized the importance of this, this, what he defined as stream entry and what he defined as cessation and how transformative that particular um, non-experience is, right? So when it happened to you, did you feel like, like that was the effect that was that that was in alignment with all the hype around it or not so much? Yeah, it seems like so. I mean, you, you make it seem to, to be some, some very, very like extreme blissful type of thing or very um, really, I think really extraordinary. Exalted. Yeah. Exalted. Yeah. yeah. That's a good word to put it, but it's kind of just like whoop, blip. And yeah, I, I find that that to be what, what it was like it was just kind of just oh interesting it's just everything kind of just cuts out and shuts out for a moment yeah and did the transformation that you expected to follow happen because for some people i hear it does and for others not the case Mm. yeah i mean i think what you all the what everything that you accumulate up until that point it kind of just stays with you and I, I just feel like you, and um, it's kind of like feeling like you just leveled up a bit. Mm. So there's the, there's a confidence that you get from it and the excitement and you're like, yes, like, you know, I got it. But at the same time, but like, you know, it never ends at the same time. So it's just like, it's not the end all and be all. It's kind of just like a, it's entry level, right? They call stream entry. Yeah. But got yeah, it. right. Yeah. So, and it's, it's cool and exciting. Um, and at the same time, um, it's not a big deal either, <laughs> you know? So Yeah. To let everyone know from my background in, in Theravada, you know, I come from the Dhammakaya tradition, so I have no experience with fruitions whatsoever. Never had a cessation in my life. <laughs> so, so I don't, I'm not actually um, directly and experientially familiar with, with this particular stuff, but I know you and so many people that, that have had this happen. So I've been curious about, um, the nuances and how our Dharma is practiced differently in, in various circles. So, mm, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah, I just wanted to say that my practice now doesn't even uh, uh, involve the four path model of enlightenment. I kind of just like, you know what, I'm going to focus more on compassion and more being a comp- integrating mindfulness and compassion in my everyday life. Mm. So, so to me, like that, that path, it, it's, 
it's it was a, a really motivating at one point, but it's it's kind of like, but now it's just like, let me you know focus my efforts elsewhere and 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 kind of uh, uh, live the every, uh, kind of be the best person I can be with the spiritual insights and all the practice and the readings and all that. And that, that's been how my practice has evolved. Yeah, completely. I, I feel that even for me, the promise of uh, attainments and these really special states and the maps and all of that, like it really gets you going, you know, it, it, it gets you to, to buy the plane ticket to Asia or it gets you to seek a teacher or it gets you to do these retreats. But like once you've actually done that and you've done it for 10 years, your practice is very different. And that's something I wanted to ask you too. Um, considering how things were in the first couple years of your practice, or let's say under the five-year mark, and then after the five-year mark, what would you say is one of, one of the other distinct changes? Like you mentioned that now you're not so concerned with the four-path model at all, and that you're working on compassion. Have you noticed anything really different in yourself or in your, in your perception of, of reality uh, mm. now versus when you first started? Yeah. So now I just know what's, what's possible kind of, I is like, and what, and I use these tools, these meditative tools, like uh, glimpsing non-duality, uh, cultivating compassion, metta, all these things I, I, I think of as just um, things that I have in my kind of my backpack that I can bring out whenever I need to uh, in life. So, and, and, and so these are things that I can remember and, and uh, kind of utilize when need be like, okay, if I'm, you know, going through a depressive state right now, maybe I can glimpse some non-duality and sense some self-compassion. And then, but, and what I've noticed that it's kind of, I mean, it, it's, it's just like a, really useful tool i don't know how I, how else to explain it it's kind of just like wow this is a breakthrough it's just like i can do this and do this and it's kind of like a jujitsu move on my psychology type of and what i've noticed is like my my i you know i still feel all the feelings i still get sad anxious i still feel grief i still feel loss i feel still feel ecstatic sometimes and really hyped up or excited about stuff it's just it just I have ways of dealing with it and, and ways of being with it and, and um, having perspective. And that's what it all comes down to me, gaining perspective, changing consciousness in order to experientially change your perspective in a way. Yeah. Has there been any relationship or um, crossover between your, your, uh, jiu-jitsu practice and your and your dharma practice yeah that's a good that's a good question it's almost like the same principles apply everywhere right being calm and composed less reactive um, helps you in jiu-jitsu right uh because you're the the people that are i don't know that are flailing and reactive in jiu-jitsu without having the basic skill set often end up um getting tapped out, getting strangled, right? So you need to have the skills to call upon when, when things get aggressive or there's some danger, you, you need, but then you also know what, need to know when to 
respond and how quickly. So there's a precision to it. So it's, so it's just like this kind of call and response with your, your sparring partner. Um, there's a call and response in your psychological stuff and also your relationships. So that's how I feel it. There's just like this give and take this ebb and flow. And then with the meditative of techniques, we can ebb and flow better with, with life, with, in our jujitsu with life. Awesome. Awesome. So this is a common, uh, a thing that I notice with, um, people who start in the secular circles, they're doing meditation, they're doing meditation. And then at some point it gets strange. Like you enter some really strange territory. Like you mentioned Kundalini and, you know, I just listened to Dan Ingram's interview about the, uh, about the fire casino and all of this um, super normal stuff. And it's funny when I interviewed Tina Rasmussen, I asked her about, about all of that. I said, well, what do you think of these uh, other realms and other beings? And she was like, yeah, I mean, uh, I have experienced them, but was told directed my intuition directed me not to explore all of that. Where does all of that fit in your practice? Do you feel it's particularly important or are you not really too concerned or connected with any of that? Connected with uh, like kind of. Um, the sci-fi stuff, you sci-fi know? Yeah. Stuff. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's stuff, that stuff's really fun to play with and really fun to kind of think that way and put that worldview on. Cause I was always a rational and materialist, right? Science, I grew up with a science. Um, background and scientific rational view of the world and um well, at the same time i've i think it's interesting to kind of entertain you know of uh communing with devas and things like that and like uh um maybe non-human intelligence so i think it's you know if i experience stuff that some people would say could be like could be some interpreted as that by certain uh, traditions or teachers. And yeah, so I think it's, to me, I think it's, it's interesting until it's just like, then it becomes ordinary. <laughs> then it's just like, it's not that interesting. It's interesting at first. Right. And, and the, then it's just like, okay, then it's maybe, maybe it's, it's all up for, it's all like up for discussion. And evaluation and like I, I can't say anything for sure right yeah I feel that how I would see it is like is if you're doing secular mindfulness or a very secular approach it's like having the same kind of dinner all the time like you're always having Indian food or you're always having standard American food mm-hmm. and then suddenly you start eating something really different like <laughs> like Burmese food <laughs> you mm. know just something like really out there but it's still food, mm-hmm. you know, it's still, it's still a dinner. It's still a buffet. That's how, that's how I see it. And I, I noticed mm-hmm. that in the beginning, uh, because of the strange nature of all this, it can really, it can be put in a pedestal in a, in a way. Um, but I think the more mature view is to just see that the spectrum of experience is very, I mean, it's unfathomable. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's so much that can happen and that is happening. So, right. Right. Yeah. It's just really interesting to me to like mix those worldviews. Cause like the scientific materialist view would be like, well, maybe you're creating that in your mind. It's being created, constructed. We have a story, story 
telling mine. So like, you know, I could see maybe why they might have a point too. Right. So yeah, what I've been really interested in, in like looking in perennial philosophy and like religions and spirituality is like, what's the commonality with all these meditations? Like, right. And a lot of it's communing with something right deeper than yourself or beyond yourself. And we all call that something different depending on what religion you're doing you're practicing and so I, I it comes down to that to me like you know some people call it the kingdom of heaven spaciousness and stillness that you get in meditation right yeah so there is something really profound about it and no matter what you want to call it i think it's all it's all good you know yeah what would you say is the most valuable thing that you've really extracted and learned from the practice I think it's perspective, equanimity, and, you know, resilience. Also, it's really nice to have a concentrated mind too. Mm. To focus on things. Yeah. So concentration, um, this ability to be with whatever's here. And, um, and it, 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 the sense of curiosity and wonder that what that's what comes to mind like this sense of curiosity and wonder in what's going on in meditation too can be really really powerful and it's kind of like brought that back out of me as an adult like it's uh, yeah so i, I oh that's um, beautiful wow yeah yeah it's like this this uh, yeah it's hard to explain but it's just a sense of like beauty too beauty in the spiritual path and beauty in meditation and what you discover, what you discover about yourself. So it's constantly changing though. And it's constantly unfolding and it just gets, keeps uh, getting better. What, what do you feel? If you could go back uh, to the beginning of your practice and maybe if it was difficult for you, the, um, the, the few, the initial year or however long it was, is there any advice that you would have for your, for yourself back then? Kind of, um, advice from back then is kind of maybe be nice to have found a teacher earlier. It would have been nice to have someone like, uh, maybe something a little more formal as opposed to kind of like do it yourself and uh, using apps and like doing your own digging, which is really helpful at first. Um, and it's also kind of like slowing down a little bit because like one thing at a time in terms of like uh, maybe one tradition or teacher at a time, not, mm -hmm. and not saying that you shouldn't look at different traditions and other lineages. It's just like, but slow it down a little bit so you can absorb um this and see for yourself and verify it and like and then and then then maybe kind of go uh learn a different learn a different tradition if that you know if that calls calls you so i'm that's just my personality my personality is to be kind of diverse and have a wide range of uh experiences and also um looking at everything from a wide lens right as opposed to yeah so there's that. I found the, the issue or one of the issues that I faced was that there's just too many practices. There's too mm -hmm. many practices, too many teachers, uh, too many philosophies, 
too many books that look mm. that are just incredible. And if I could go back, I would have told myself, um, pick the one practice that you're going to do no matter what, mm. and then do another practice that you can, you can shift with other practices or use that other practice for your like curiosity. So you mm. still have your anchor of like, that one practice and that one orientation that you're really committed to, but you give yourself the freedom to really feed and um, nurture that curiosity that you have about learning and, and trying other things. Because for me, I noticed that without choosing and investing, it's like that, you know, in that one practice, for me, I found that I had a lot of, let's say you're in the desert, right? And we're digging for water. And water is actually 20 feet deep. Like you're not going to hit water until you dig 20 feet. And so you start with a practice and then you dig like five feet. And then you're like, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to try. And then you start doing that practice and you get, you get like five feet there, another practice, 10 feet, another practice, 15 feet, uh, three more practices, five feet each. And mm -hmm. with none of them, did you hit water? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you stuck with one and you went 20 feet deep, you would have experienced the fruits. But because our time was um, expended over so many different techniques, like you could do that for decades, you know? So. Absolutely. No, that's a good point. So yeah, you can relate to kind of like the, all the options, right? And it's we painful. In, there's, there's actually yeah. like a pain that comes from that. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely some, yeah, there's a pain. There's like a FOMO. There's like, Oh, which one, which one? And then like, uh, which one do I go to? Which one do I study now? And, and um, yeah, that's kind of like the, the catch 22 of living in the 21st century, right? It's just like, we have all the world's spiritual traditions all out there, spelled out there for us. When at the tips before, of our fingers, at the tips of our fingers, it can get, it can get totally overwhelming, but um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Cause there, there is that argument about the wells or, or, or is it the wells or is it, what is it again? It's like a digging in the sand. Is that mm -hmm. what it is? Yeah. So like, yeah, if you, so I can see that point, but at the same time, there's a lot of value in having so much diverse experience. Oh, true. Absolutely. So that's, a that's a great yeah. point. Yeah. So like there's on the flip side of that, it's just like, well, you know, there's so much you can learn and, and you're pigeonholing yourself and maybe being parochial if you're only focusing on the, the one and digging deep. But then what's the opportunity cost there digging deep here? Then you're leaving all the, everything else not to be discovered. So that's what I've realized too. There's nuance to everything really, right? Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, in, from that frame, I could say, look, you know, I may, I may not be enlightened. I may not have hit water, but bro, I know how to dig holes for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I got that down. <laughs> I can do that 100. <laughs> percent yeah, It's great. Yeah, and like you said, you'll never be, uh, you'll never reach the end, really. You'll know, true. It's like so, it's just like, uh, um, you could spend your whole lifetime digging in one hole, or spend a whole lifetime digging others, and you know, there's a time and place for all of it, and there's a there's just like a phase of discovery for everybody. And then there's this phase of, okay, now, and I'm, and just roll with it. It's fine. It's all, it's all good. It's all, it's all going to come and go. It's going to all arise and pass away on, on its own. So just, yeah. And it's, it's normal too. Speaking of arising and passing, did you, did you experience the kinds of uh, inside stages that were 
talked about or that are mapped in pragmatic dharma and did you did you go through a dark night or, or any of that hmm. yeah so yeah i've gone through stages and yeah i mean it, to to me it's just kind of like the ups and downs right ups and downs in civilization and like i used to make it seem like such a really esoteric or foreign thing but i realized that like um you know some people like it, it depends on how you interpret it right so it's almost like I've, I've read interviews with frank yang who i know you know um he kind of says like yeah go, went through a dark night went through a dark night he almost like any sad moment is like a dark night right mm, any, anytime you get yeah. sad oh that's a dark night that's a dark night and maybe you could think of it that way. Like there's the ups and downs of life, right? And then you're fine, right? You're, you have an ecstatic moment, you get married. And, and then a, a little while later, there's always a trough. There's a lot of research to show this, like the ecstatics of that. And then it goes down. And then over time, it stabilizes, right? Your happiness in a marriage. So it almost, it just maps onto that almost. So um. So going back to the question, so yeah, I've experienced it, but at the same time, I try not to just make a, um, I, it just seems like it's just so natural and so fluid and, and, and it's almost like, uh, yeah, I would say my, my dark night was not so significant. Um, it, it almost seemed like kind of coming, fleeting and going, coming and going and, and just like not, it wasn't like a really severe one. I would say, and that, that I can attribute to having good support around with me and, um, also, um, yeah, having, yeah, I would say good support and perspective always, it's always perspective. And I think perspective can help. This is speaking from my own experience can always help you disembed, right? What are we doing in mindfulness? We're disembedding, seeing what's happening in real time. So I, I find that that always takes the edge off. Of any any like any anything that happens in you know a meditative landscape, from your point of view, and maybe from some of the things you've learned from Kenneth and um, in the pragmatic circles, how how do you differentiate between your personal stuff coming up, like trauma being released, for example? How do you differentiate between that and an actual insight stage? Is there a differentiation? This is always a, a question. I've had so what's your yeah. what's your perspective on that so what I've from what I've learned is it's up for discussion it, I right mean, it's really hard to diagnose it's it's, it's hard and, th and that's what I know people are doing um the they're trying to they're trying to discern it they're trying to uh parse out the differences yeah so from my understanding trauma is very different from the stages of insight it's kind of a separable thing like re-experiencing trauma that's something different than because that's something that happened in your past it's yeah. bubbling up and then stages of insight they could look similar right they could they might uh, yeah they might overlap exactly but i don't think they're the same thing from what right I've, what i've um yeah from my understanding yeah I have, because for me when i was going through um the initial there was a period in my practice where after I had this opening of uh, being everything, or I, I call it the phase of, or the stage of I am everything. So that characterized my practice for a couple of years or just my life for a couple of years. And there is an oscillation, like a dance between 
having the experience of being everything in the forefront of consciousness and then um, identifying as the personality. So one day you're in this identification as the entire universe, like I am everything. And then the next day you're in this identification of you being a person. And so there's this oscillation mm, mm. and on the, like the, on the, on the upside of the arc where the, I am everything and the non-duality, that flavor of non-duality is, is um, expanding and just so immaculate afterwards, there's this contraction and the sense of self comes back to the forefront, the, the mm. you, that mm. you weren't, that you were not, for not weak, you know? Yeah. And there's just so much pain in that. Like, it's just this abysmal pain that comes up. And, and I had this particular, just not feeling much of anything at all. It's basically like apathy. And I thought it was related to the, to the insight stages. I don't, I'm not sure, not sure, you know, it's like, is it, is it me or is it a stage or what? And I asked Tina Rasmussen about it in a call and her perspective was very unique. She said, you know what, what I'm sensing is that this is part of the purification, like this apathy that keeps coming up on the contraction cycle for you. That's what's being worked through. That's what's being cleared out and purified through the awakening. So I thought that was hmm. a very, a very interesting point of view. Yeah, that is interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. after enough, after enough, openings and contraction cycles that apathy eventually was wiped out and oh, i haven't nice. experienced it since yeah oh that's great oh yeah so wild that's, right just just yeah. naturally just vanished one day so interesting how did you work through the so the apathy how did you work to purify it well um i just kept riding essentially that that arc, that upward arc and that, um, that contraction phase, the expansion mm. and contraction. And that would happen like every month or something. So mm. just kept practicing. And, um, Tina has always been a coach and I've had other coaches and teachers that I've always consulted. So following their instructions and just letting the practice unfold. Um, there was a day actually where, because a part of the the immenseness of the I am everything was, was actually part of reifying. It was a reification of the background. So I was seeing this non-dual presence almost as, as if it was something that happens to me, right? And that's actually a, a misperception. And there was a day where I, where awareness just, or mind just looked at itself and it was realized that the recognition itself is actually empty. And that it's not something mm. that happens. It's just something that is. Mm. And that ended the expansion contraction cycles. Oh. Um, I had that in combination with called timeline therapy. It's used in mm. NLP. So I did, yeah, I did. That. Yeah. So I did those two things, my main practice. And then also I had like 10 hours of timeline therapy with my friend who was doing an NLP certification and that boom, the three years of those cycles ended after that. Wow, this power of the super modalities. So super was, powerful. NLP combined with timeline therapy helped. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important point to say that, you know, um, uh, you know, spiritual practice is not going to solve all your problems. Oh, absolutely not. It's one tool in the tool shed when maybe you need to kind of uh, talk to a therapist, maybe you need to get some exercise, <laughs> maybe you need to eat right. So, you know, and I found that I was like, I felt like I was kind of almost barking up the wrong tree for some of the things I was dealing with. Like, 
oh, I want my spiritual practice to you know, help me with my anxiety. Well, let me go for a run. That's going to, that's going to be really useful too. You know, it's, it's, it's a combination of all of it. You got to weave it all together. You got to weave all your, your personal development work with spiritual work, with all your self-help, with all your, um, the people around you, your friends, your group of people. So it's like, it has to all integrate. And especially, um, I know like myself and you as well, you want to go all in and dive fully into it. And that's really great. But one thing I realize is like, when you come back out of it, you're just like, um, that when you see that the sacred in the every day, that's mm-hmm. the one you're like, okay, now my, my life is my practice. My eating, my vegetables is my practice. Right. <laughs> and um, yeah. Calling a good, you know, talking to you is a practice, you know, oh, yeah. talking to my friends. So I, I think it, um, um, it's always remembering that. Remembering that. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, my thing um, that I feel is really important to when we talk about jhanas and formless attainments and, and fruitions and insight maps and cycles and, you know, other dimensions and all of this, like that, that's all, that's all fine. And that is part of the whole thing, but it comes back to here. I mean, whatever that is, right. <laughs> here, 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 yeah. Yeah. Here, here, here and now. And, um, I think that lived awakening is, is so important um, because whatever realm or whatever it is that you do it in your, in your practice, I feel that if you're like, if the baseline of what you are, of how you experience reality and of how you see yourself um, isn't being touched or isn't being transformed or there isn't perceptual alteration that's happening there, then you always feel like your practice is something that you're doing, you know, and Mm. it's not something, and it's not something that you are. And I feel like that's such a huge difference. And I see that in people like you and people who are more mature in their practice and have been doing it for longer. Like, I just don't see that in people the first two or three years. I really don't. Yeah. That's my, my, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Mindfulness is very much a thing that you do as opposed to a thing that is just a part of life. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. And that reminds me of kind of like the uh, the gradual path versus the sudden path or direct path, right? And I think that they are not mutually exclusive in that, um, you know, the progressive path of doing mindfulness training, Vipassana, the doing takes you to a point where then you can go the effortless path or the non-doing path and realizing um, the, uh, the practice is doing you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what does your practice look like now? And, you know, what's, what's ahead in terms of what, what, what you're doing with your, your practice? Hmm. Yeah. My, um, so yeah, my practice is kind of like, so I have a sitting practice, sit for about 20 minutes a day. I sit, um, do a combination of, uh, kind of, uh, concentration, I do noting. I do a lot of social noting too with friends and I do a weekly class. You've been there before. So many times. um, So teaching that. And so I do noting then, um, but in my sitting practice, I do um, meta compassion. It's just, it's kind of like, um, kind of like what I said in like uh, that. It's just like a 
it's something you call upon throughout the day. Yeah. So it's almost like I sit and I'll do, you know, my formal practice, but then in the day is kind of like when I is when I'm ready to kind of use whatever I need to use. It's the, you know, the arrows are in my, my satchel to ready, ready to at my disposal. Awesome. So what, yeah. what drew you to begin teaching and how is that related to what you do professionally as an occupational therapist? Mm, yeah. So I was always teaching kind of, as I started out as, as a therapist, I was always informally teaching mindfulness. Um, then I, uh, I got more serious about it and, and going up the teacher training path. So I became a certified mindfulness uh, teacher uh, through the International Mindfulness Teachers Association. And so, and I just saw a huge need in the institutions I was. I, I was teaching in nursing homes. I was teaching to people um, for a couple of years, teaching mindfulness to kind of stabilize the mind and get relief from anxiety and stress that come with disease and age and uh, illness. And, and so I, then I started then I started working in the school system. I worked for, with kids with uh, um, special needs in a specialized high school in Brooklyn. And there's a huge need for that. Teachers, staff-wide teachers, students. So um, I just became the guy to do that. And so now I'm really focused. So I focus on teaching meditation to my one-on-one students, kids with autism, and a lot of them have autism, ADHD. There's a, some of intellectual disabilities. So teaching in that form, while also teaching teachers, and also and also teaching um, uh, my weekly classes, uh, weekday nights, and also doing one-on-one work coaching. So, so yeah, that's what it looks like right now. And what, how's the project that you're um, involved with, with uh, Dan Ingram, the um, consortium? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's going well. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a uh, fun times. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, it's nice talking to other people that are trying to bring awareness to emergent phenomena. Right. And so um, I'm trying to bring awareness in, into the schools now because uh and where I work, there's a lot of, of uh, say, excitement around teaching mindfulness, but also just teaching them, you know, what else could happen? What are the risks? And it just comes down to communicating and teaching, right? And I think uh, trauma-informed mindfulness helps dovetail with that as well. You and I both teach uh, meditation and, and mindfulness in schools, and there's this there's this uh, growing notion that like every kid and every single person in, in the United States and in the world should do mindfulness and, and meditate. How do you, what do you think of that? How do you feel about that? That idea? Mm. Yeah, I'm of two minds of it. I think it's really well-intentioned and I think it, it is great. Um, and I, I do, I do think if more people sat down and examined themselves and understood themselves, that's just all positive. This is all great. The, the caveat there is that it, that it's all just going to be, you know, smooth sailing and there aren't going to be maybe some, you know, risks there aren't that, that there are no risks. And I think a lot of the research now is showing that there are risks and it's not all just very pleasant. And, um, I think my, the modern mindfulness, uh, uh, 
kind of, how do I say, modern mindfulness movement, right, is really great at marketing a certain outcome and result, right? And it's not the complete picture. So I think it's great. I think the modern, the mindfulness movement is awesome. But now it's time to like maybe reel it in and be a little more nuanced about um, um, its effects and also um, the research and yeah, kind of just refining our understanding of it and what these powerful practices could do, what they can do, whether the risks, benefits, and alternatives. It's a great what point because yeah, the a lot of the attention seeking behavior or dissociative behaviors or just a lot of the things that teenagers do that are harmful are because they're trying to get away from the body, right? They're trying to get away from the feelings. And I think I'm not sure how much of it is being accounted for that by teaching them mindfulness of the body, you're literally just having them tap right into that. And um, I've had a lot of kids that are, they are really uncomfortable with meditation. Mm. Yeah. So most of them love it, right? Most of Mm -hmm. them are okay. Yeah. But some just, just won't do it. Right. Right. Oh, that's a good point. Because there's this like top-down pressure to, you know, put out mindfulness and make it part of the embedded in the community, which is great, but some kids don't want to do it. So what do we, and maybe for, you know, a variety of good reasons, because they should have autonomy. That's another thing, right? The kids should have autonomy and just, and I think to, um, it's, it's important to like give them like a kind of a, uh, an alternative. All right. If you, if you just want to close your eyes for a little bit, that's fine too. So I think that there's some kids that can be uh, fall through the cracks when everyone we're trying to bring mindfulness in and especially trying to scale it. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's a good point to kind of say like, it's kind of like, you know, some kids really avoided math because they hated it. So they try to skip it all the time or something like that. So like, you know, it's, we got to think about those kids a bit and see how we can help them. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I was in high school, I was full of emotional pain, you know, like <laughs> I, I knew a lot of emotional pain. So I think, I think having to, mm. having to sit with that, like on one hand, it's really good if I'm able to do it and if I was willing to do it, but um, if I wasn't, then it would probably give me like a bad taste in my mouth about the whole thing, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It, it, it takes someone really skilled and really steeped in the practice. I've seen the train can knows what can happen. Um, you need people like that in the schools. You need people in there to um, help uh, make it uh, effective and safe. So, and making it safe is making it effective. So, right. So um, yeah, I think that's something that that's something important to me as well. Cause I, I mean, I've seen it, I've seen children go through, or teens go through uh, re-experiencing trauma, for instance. And then like, and it's kind of, it can be kind of alarming if you don't know what to expect. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also important to not gen- over generalize that bad things can happen in meditation, you know, for some people, and especially with, you know, it's, it seems to be dose dependent, right? If you go on long retreats, then yeah, they have a lot, lot, 
huge sample size for things to go wrong or things to come up, right? But if you're doing five minutes here, three minutes here, five minutes here, you know, it's less likely. But at the same time, no, got to be prepared for what to expect, kind of, you know. And, um, and then deal with that as that arises, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the, the concerns that I, I have too is that um, I see people teaching mindfulness or I meet people that have learned it. And then I ask them, what were you taught? And then they were like, oh, I was taught to like go to my happy place and, <laughs> and to stay there. And I'm like, huh. That's a little mm. different than like mindfulness in the context that I learned it in, in Asia. Um, what mm. do you think about, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. About how, how mindfulness has become so widespread. The word is so, has so much buzz and hype that it's kind of just mapped onto everything. Whereas opposed to mindfulness really to me is a, a systematic approach to um, training your attention in a certain way and using it to get, insights and using it to kind of um, understand yourself in a deep way, right? Your, your bodily sensations, your mind, the four foundations of mindfulness. That's what I go to, you know, that's what I think of mindfulness, but yeah, you're right about like, um, not saying that those things aren't good, like of, of positive imagery, you know, things like that, or, but it, it just seems like, like um, mindfulness is being used to advertise everything like mindful, you know, healing crystals, Right. And like mindful tarot cards. Right. And it's like, oh, you're well, you're mindful while you're reading the card or your mind. So that's that's what's kind of like it's um, yeah, it seems to kind of just get distorted. Right. Yeah. It's really funny. I'll see some uh, <laughs> like an Airbnb ad and like one of the experiences like is like mindful tea time, you know, or like mindful walking and it's all great it's good to like do that it's better to do that to, than to not do it mm -hmm. but i'm just fast i'm really just blown away by how popular it's become and how how part of our um, western culture and western society uh, it is now so mm -hmm. i'm in mm -hmm. in one in one respect i'm like a little apprehensive and in the other i'm also very excited for where this is going to go in in 10 or in 20 years so yeah, it's, it, it's going to be exciting to see where the mindfulness movement goes and the wellness industry in general as a whole, right? Because that's what it's really driving a lot of this, right? The wellness self-help industry, you know, mental health as well. And, you know, mindfulness is one really great tool to use. And yeah, I, I, I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Fantastic. Tim, this was, this was an awesome conversation, man. Do you have any final, final words or final comments or a final piece of advice before we close out? Um, no, I just had a really great time. So thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it, Ryan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Fantastic, man. Thank you for coming on the show.